All right, guys, so here's, here's, here's some facts for you. The handgun weighs in at about one kilogram, kills more people in the ghetto than any other weapon in the world. The machete, weighing in at about one and a half kilograms, has killed more people than any other weapon in human history. But that these weapons, handguns, machetes, they pale into insignificance next to the weapon of mass destruction that I'm going to speak to you about today. This weapon, weighing in about 60 to 70 grams, has done more damage, does more damage than any other weapon in human history. It causes more pain, more suffering, more brokenness than any other weapon. And the weapon, of course, is the tongue. The question is why? Why? Why is this little five to seven centimeter piece of skeletal muscle so dangerous? The Bible is unequivocal on this. The tongue is a restless evil, it says in this chapter. But why? If we were to make this an investigation, our initial foray into it would probably probably come up with the fact that it's a problem of location. Modern science has revealed that there are few places on earth more infested with bacteria than the human tongue. There are over a hundred million microscopic creatures that live on your tongue. So husbands, just take a minute now, just lean over and give your, your wife a big open mouth kiss. Can you do that for us? <laughs> Wives, you've got it too, all right? This isn't sexist. However, as as interesting and gross as that is, the problem with the tongue is not physical location. It's not its physical location, it's its spiritual connection. That's the issue. Because scripture reveals to us that in a spiritual anatomy, the tongue is directly tied to the heart. And it's the heart that motivates and manipulates the tongue for good or evil to bless or to curse. Remember Jesus said it, Matthew chapter 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when it comes to the problem of brokenness and bitterness and sin and folly in the world, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. When it comes to all of the brokenness you see in the world, from wars to rape and molestation to violence, every single thing that is wrong with the world can be traced back to the heart. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. This means it's your problem and my problem. During the Great War, the Times of London ran this article called What is Wrong with the World? And they asked intellectuals and authors and journalists to write essays answering the question, what is wrong with the world, right? The world is falling down around us. This is the war to end all wars, if only. 
And so they said, what is wrong with the world? This was in the midst of a revolution in thinking that would would turn people away from spiritual understanding to materialistic understanding. This is post-enlightenment, right? We, we don't have a category for spiritual, spirituality anymore, so we need to figure out what is wrong with the world. And one famous Christian author wrote in, and he said, Sir, in answer to your question, what is wrong with the world, I am. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. And that's the truth. That's the truth. You can try and legislate morality. You can try and educate people into better ways of living, more civil society. But the, the, the problem won't be solved by legislation or education. The problem is spiritual. The problem is in the heart of every single person who lives on the earth. And the heart motivates and manipulates the tongue for good or evil, to bless or curse. And so it's not surprising then that James gives much lip service to the tongue in this most practical book on Christian living. Indeed, James gives attention to the tongue in each of the five chapters of his letter. You would have noticed this so far if you've been with us. Chapter 1, chapter 2, now chapter 3, 4 and 5. They all give a place for teaching on the tongue. He knows that this is at the heart of the problem. And James isn't the only one who who majors on the mouth, right, in, in the Scriptures. There's hardly a sin more exposed, more condemned in the Old and New Testaments than sins of speech. So in Genesis 3.12, the first actual sin that follows the fall is a sin of speech. It's right there at the beginning. It started at the beginning. In Romans, when Paul wants to illustrate the utter depravity of man, the utter brokenness, the total soaking of sin into our very core, he chooses to quote the Psalms. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of vipers is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And when Isaiah wanted to express his utter depravity, his utter sense of doom before God, he said, I am a man of unclean lips. It's a confession I've made so many times. I'm a man of unclean lips. So the Bible variously refers to the tongue as wicked, deceitful, perverse, filthy, corrupt, flattering, slanderous, gossiping, blasphemous, Foolish, boasting, complaining, cursing, contentious, sensual, and vile. And it says more than that. So it's clear that the tongue possesses unspeakable power. Proverbs Proverbs 18 teaches us that death and life are in the power of of the tongue. So now, in in chapter 3, James doesn't just want to point out the obvious. If we we finish the sermon there, you'd be saying, all right, we get it. 
What are we meant to do about it? And James, because he is imminently practical, doesn't just want to point out the obvious. He wants us to grow in wisdom. He wants us to be wise in all of life, and in this chapter, specifically in the use of our tongue. So I'm going to set out seven simple principles for our careful consideration, all right? Number one, and it'd be good for you to have the Bible open because we're simply going to go through a verse or two at a time. Number one, the tongue tests our teachers. Verse one, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Gives me chills. So what, what is James saying here? Is he discouraging people from teaching the truth to others? Is he saying maybe, maybe you shouldn't join the kids' ministry to teach our kids? Or maybe you shouldn't be a small group leader? Maybe. He might be saying that to you. But that's not the main point of what he's saying. What he's saying is that the greatest leaders in the church have the greatest capacity to do harm to the church. The greatest leaders in the church have the greatest capacity to do harm to the church. From the very beginning, from the day of Pentecost, the highest offices of leadership in the church have been filled by teachers. Christianity is a movement led by teachers. And that's why in 1 Timothy 3, Paul says that elders and overseers, that's just synonymous with pastors, must be able to teach. It's the only competency he, he mentions. You don't have to be competent in any other thing, but you must be able to teach. Christianity is a, wor- a word faith. And so you have to be able to teach if you're going to be a leader in the church. But in the same passage, 1 Timothy 3, he also lists a bunch of character traits. One competency and a bunch of character traits because he knows that the greatest leaders in the church have the greatest capacity to do damage to the church. If you have an unqualified leader in the church, it's a recipe for disaster. And so James says, don't rush into this office of teacher. Don't be too quick to take up that mantle because we have, he he mentions himself here, right? We have the greatest capacity for harm. We, he says, will be judged with greater strictness because of that fact. So God has an elevated category of judgment for those who would take up this role this thing that I'm doing right now, this thing that, that they're doing out there with our kids right now. If you teach others about Christ, you must be meticulous with your mouth, mindful of your motives, and moving towards maturity. Meticulous with your mouth, mindful of your motives, and moving towards maturity in Christ, which leads me to point two. Number two, the tongue measures our maturity. Verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. So I just want you to take a moment now, just think about any behavior or activity that you've tried to control in your life. 
Like me, you might have attempted to quit smoking. Well, I, I know a, a few of you here right now are trying to quit smoking. You might have tried to do that multiple times, right? You might have tried a diet or two. You might have tried to stop snoring or drinking or social media addiction. I don't know what your experience is of trying to control behavior, but I can tell you from my experience, the hardest thing to control is my speech. The hardest member of my body to control is my tongue. Words have a way of slipping off the tongue before we can stop them. And often this happens with devastating consequences for others, for ourselves, or most likely for both of us. And when this happens in churches, it can be the genesis of division dissolution. So just listen to some of the the wisdom of the Proverbs on this, right? James is the, the Proverbs of the New Testament. Listen to the Proverbs of the Old Testament. A perverse man sows strife and a whisperer separates the best of friends. A fool's mouth is his destruction and his lips are the snare of his soul. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who speaks lies shall perish. The tongue measures our maturity because it's an audio-visual indicator of our relationship with Christ. I wonder if you've ever questioned why the doctor examines your tongue when you're going for a checkup. It's happened since we were little kids, so we haven't really, if you like me, haven't really thought about why they do that. But apparently, it tells him or her a lot about the, our physical condition. If it's coated, you've probably got a fever. If it's yellowish, apart from being gross, you've probably got um, problems with your digestive system. The point is, by looking at your tongue... A doctor can learn a great deal about your physical condition. And similarly, by a tongue examination, we can learn quite a bit about a person's spiritual condition. In the second century, Justin Martyr, one of the fathers of the church, said this. I've got it on screen. He says, By examining the tongue of a patient, physicians find out the diseases of the body, Philosophers find out the diseases of the mind. Christians find out the diseases of the soul. That's the truth. If you want to find out where your soul is diseased, where you're lacking in wisdom and maturity, just take an audit of your words. By examining the tongue of a patient, physicians find out the diseases of the body. Philosophers find out the diseases of the mind. Christians find out the diseases of the soul. So clearly James' point is this. Either your tongue will control you or you will control your tongue. Or to put it more positively, as he does, controlling your tongue leads to a master control of your life. 
which leads us to the third point. The tongue determines our direction. Verse 3 and 4, when we put bits in the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. So James loves his illustrations. This is why I love James. You can say something abstract and it will land on one of us or maybe two who are very logically minded. The rest of us need illustrations, right? We need a picture. And he gives us two here, very apt illustrations. My wife, Renee, loves horses. That's her favorite animal. She used to own a horse when she was growing up, and she is a very good horse rider. Um, which is weird because Renee is five foot tall in her riding boots, and a horse weighs half a ton. In terms of raw power, the horse was unmatched in James' day. They were a symbol of power. If you had an army and you populated it with horsemen, you would be feared throughout the world. Raw power. Even today, we measure the power of machines with horsepower. Horses are magnificent Beasts. However, if you put a five centimeter bit in their mouth and a staggeringly beautiful woman on their back, this thing goes from a wild, powerful beast into a graceful, obedient pet. It's the same with ships. Immense vessels made of iron have no right to even float. Blown, driven by catastrophic winds should be absolutely uncontrollable. But you put a small rudder just under the surface and suddenly you've got a cruise liner. It's a great point he makes, isn't it? Something so small can control something so powerful. And just like the horse and the ship in James' illustration, our lives are bound to be driven in some direction. It's inevitable for good or for evil. What we say with our tongue is, is, is absolutely going to determine where we go. So, fam... In your ministry, in your gospel ministry, the right word at the right time may open doors for the gospel that will set the course for your life and for those around you. Eternity hangs in the balance. Christianity is a gospel-centered faith. It's a gospel-speaking faith. If you don't speak, then people don't get saved. It's God's appointed means to save us from our sins. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. 
On the other hand, the wrong word at the wrong time could close doors, mar reputations, and mark your ministry, your gospel ministry, forever. I could preach a whole sermon, which would be an hour of self-flagellation, on a fraction of the occasions that I have turned Renee away from hearing and receiving the gospel of grace because of my lack of tongue control. Let me say that again. I could preach for an hour easily without pages of notes from memory on a fraction on a fraction of the times that I have turned my wife away from receiving the good news of the gospel of grace on account of my lack of friggin' tongue control. Words will determine our direction towards the gospel of grace or in the opposite direction. And if any of you doubt that the tongue is really that powerful, this all seems a little bit melodramatic, check out point number four. It only gets worse. The tongue inflames our iniquity. The tongue inflames our iniquity. Five to six. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. These are going to be James's most damning words against the tongue, literally. He uses the word Gehenna here, that's translated hell. It's the only time it's used outside of the Gospels, and it's synonymous with hell, Satan, demons. Our tongues are set on fire by demons. And the tongue is a tool that the devil is well trained to use. He doesn't come across your tongue and say, oh, is there a manual? Right? He is well trained. He was there in the beginning. First sin, following the fall. Sin of speech. Sin, sin of tongue. Ever since, he's just been working on his chops, right? He knows how to use it. And he will use it. Look at the Apostle Peter, right, for example. Peter is a study in use of the tongue for evil, right? He's constantly putting his foot in his mouth. But there's one specific place where Jesus calls him out in a very castigating, excoriating way. Matthew 16. Peter takes Jesus aside. He gives him the best advice he can give him, coming from, no doubt, a place of love for his teacher, for his Saviour, he has, he has confessed that Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. And then he says to Jesus, 
in response to Jesus telling them about his imminent death, he says, never, Lord, crucifixion, execution, excruciating, humiliating death, this shall never happen to you. What was Jesus' response? Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Peter, Satan is using your tongue as a tool. Get behind me. So you see, James' James's warning here, it's about more than just making sure you don't swear. God, save us from making that the sum total of our effort. You know, there are, there are Christians who pride themselves on not swearing. You think they've achieved something by not swearing, while at the same time are the most brutal gossips and slanderers. God have mercy. The tongue can be a devastating instrument of the devil. And it can also be as destructive as a bushfire. I was in Diamond Creek on Black Saturday, just a couple of k's from that fire. Renee was one of the first responders as a paramedic. And then for weeks afterwards, the devastation of a bushfire is synonymous with the potential of the tongue. He says, consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. I remember in my early teens, growing up on a large property in a semi-rural town, how much fun I had lighting stuff on fire. It was kind of a hobby, actually. I didn't discriminate. Everything was a potential blaze, really. If you had had enough propellant to get it going, everything could be lit on fire. And uh, I remember quite distinctly in my mid-teens hatching a plan with my younger brother. Uh, When we were kids, we called ourselves the Troublesome Twosome. And um, we didn't grow out of it, but maybe we haven't still, but... On that day, we underestimated the power that James speaks of. We had this plan, right? This was um, mid-90s. And during that time, Victoria was facing this massive rabbit plague. And our property was just just moved with rabbits, just destroying everything. We, uh, We ourselves had horses on our property and they had nothing to eat because of this plague. And so we had this idea that we were going to eradicate every rabbit from every burrow on our property. So we mixed polystyrene with petrol to form a a sort of sludgy substance that we call napalm. And then we proceeded to pour barrels of it down every hole that we could find. And the the plan worked brilliantly, right? The, The napalm was poured, the trap was set, and with one spark on the fuse... The whole thing went up. We blew up every tunnel in the rabbit warren. They're all connected, right? 
There was one problem, though. In our kind of pyro brilliance, we had decided to execute this plan. In the middle of summer, the grass on our property is six feet tall, bone dry, and the house was saved, but the paddock was reduced to ashes. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. One rash word, one white lie, one degrading morsel of gossip. It can go from spark to bushfire, just like that. Have you seen this? Churches are particularly prone. It's the middle of summer, the grass is six feet tall, and bone dry in our church today. So the question is, why is it so easy? It seems so easy for Satan to manipulate our tongues. And the truth is that every one of us, our tongue, just feel it inside your mouth. It's soaked in the sludgy napalm of sin. It's made of highly flammable material. It's bone dry and just waiting for Satan's diabolical designs. It really is. Some of us more than others, but all of us in potential. And just like a bushfire or an untamed animal, our tongues are dangerous because they're unpredictable. Point number five, the tongue reveals our rebellion. Verse seven to eight, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Back at the turn of the century, I worked at a camp in America And um, the second year that I was working there, my position was nature director. I had no qualifications, apart from being good at burning stuff, I guess. And um, my job basically consisted of taking an empty classroom portable and filling it with animals so that these inner city uh, kids from the ghetto could come and learn about stuff. A lot of these kids, they said, had never walked on grass before. Um, and so this was, I took it as a privilege to kind of open their eyes to the natural world around them. And so I'd spent my time walking through the forests of northern Pennsylvania, catching stuff and putting them in cages and aquariums at the camp so that the kids could learn. One of my favorite things to do at camp was catch snakes. And um, it wasn't just because it impressed the ladies, though it did. Um, but I grew up around snakes on this property that I was talking about, and they were all tiger snakes that I th- I'm pretty sure can kill you if they look you in the eye. But most of the snakes in this place, most of the snakes were, um, were non-venomous. And my, the favorite one I caught was a big five-foot-long rat snake, black rat snake. Um, they're constrictors. They don't have any poison, um, but it was impressive to look at, right? I caught this snake. And, um, and with me, it was as docile as a kitten. I would just, I would literally, when I was doing paperwork and stuff, would just have it on me, hanging out. But, for some reason, whenever a child held it, 
it would turn into this unpredictable, rebellious creature and the kid would end up with puncture marks on its hand or face. The snake was a restless evil. It was so unpredictable. And James paints a similar picture here concerning the tongue. Though most animals can be tamed and broken, the tongue seems to have a rebellious mind of its own. And just as I learned that my rat snake would lash out whenever a little kid held it, we need to learn the tendencies of our tongues. When are we prone to lash out? When are we prone for our tongues to go feral? For me, it's when I'm tired or when I've had anything to drink. Which is why, by the way, I do not drink a drop of alcohol anymore. It's purely for that reason, that my tongue is looser when I've drunk anything and it's caused much damage. So I don't drink anymore. I love drinking. Cold beer on a Sunday afternoon, come on, praise the Lord. But I can't. I can't do it because it looses my tongue that little bit more and opens the door that little bit wider for Satan to come in. So I don't do it. This is serious. When Jesus said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. He wasn't mucking around. You, you need to identify what opens you up. You need to identify what is it that looses your tongue to lash out. Is it when your kids misbehave? Is it when you're made to wait for something? God forbid. Is it when you're depressed or hungry or grieving or worn out? James says, get to know your tongue's tendencies. And slam the door on anything that makes it more prone than it already is because number six the tongue compromises our confession of christ verse 9 to 12 with the tongue we praise our lord and father and with it we curse human beings who have been made in the god's likeness oh my god With the tongue, we stand up at church and praise. Rodney's leading us in worship first time up this morning, and he's a natural. God has given him natural abilities and supernatural abilities. Likewise with Sarah. They lead us in praise, and oh, how our tongues love to give praise to God, our Lord and Father, and then how long is it before we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness? Out of the same mouth come praising and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a 
fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs, neither can salt a salt spring produce fresh water. He's rebuking us, right? He's rebuking us in this room right now. He's rebuking me. This is not stage to audience. He's rebuking all of us for our inconsistency in speech. James knows that the tongue is like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He knows that it's easy. It's easy. It's like falling over easy to to praise God and curse men in the same breath. He knows our tendency to build up only to tear down again. And so he rebukes us. Brothers and sisters, this ought not be so. That's just a polite Bible translator's way of saying, this is messed up. This is just not right. To allow our tongues to function like this compromises our confession because it's just so inconsistent with our profession of Christ. He pushes the point by the use of more illustrations. I love him for this. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? The obvious answer is no. But it goes deeper than this, right? If we mix bitter water with sweet water, what do we get? Any ideas? Bitter water. The bitterness overrides the sweetness. It doesn't matter that there is a pure source and an impure source. The only thing that remains is the pollution. Corroate Creek can flow and flow and flow and nothing's going to shift those shopping trolleys. So it is with the tongue. It may produce words both bitter and sweet, but most often only the bitter words will be remembered. Jesus said this, Matthew 15, those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. It's your speech that defiles all of you. It pollutes, it desecrates. There's a professor of psychology called Dr. John Gottman. He, um, he charted the amount of time couples spent arguing versus interacting positively. So touching, smiling, paying compliments, laughing. And he found that there's a very specific ratio that exists between negative interactions and positive interactions in, in stable relationships. He says it's five to one. You need to have five positive interactions for every one negative interaction to be stable. Not to be flying, to be stable. To not get divorced. Five to one. Why? Because when you mix sweet water with bitter water, the bitterness remains. It's true of marital relationships. It applies to the church. If you want to feel the force of what James is saying in this passage, then you need to understand, he addresses teachers at the top, but he's speaking to every individual in this room, down to the smallest child. Is your mouth a source of fresh water that gives life, or salt water that poisons and chokes and kills? Do you remember 
Remember those minor defamatory comments? Those little morsels of gossip that you just spread out the side of your mouth? Little things. Well, it only takes a spark to start a firestorm. And you, brothers and sisters, who desire to speak the sweet words of the gospel, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Please don't pollute it. Please don't make it a bitter gospel, a brackish gospel. Because you know, brothers and sisters, a fig tree must have a fig must have a fig tree as its source. Salt water has a salty source. Sweet water, a sweet source. Bitter words, a bitter heart. Critical words, a critical spirit. And unloving, defamatory, gossiping, slanderous speech flows from a heart where the love of Jesus is all dried up. We are in danger along with every other church, but we are in danger of harboring this kind of toxic pollution in our midst. And where we want to see the fruit of the gospel born in massive abundance, the quickest way to shrivel up that fruit tree is to do it with our tongues. I guess what I want us to know, more than anything else, or the, the thing I want us to feel is the, the hazardous nature of what we're dealing with. This is a, a fine line that we have to walk all the days of our life. And any one of us is prone to fall into this snare. And the reason is, it's, it's not just Satan who knows how to use our tongues as a tool. It is our threefold enemy. You remember this. This is a good thing to remember. We have a threefold enemy. Some of us are prone when we experience evil to blame it on ourselves. Some of us are prone to blame it on the world around us. Some of us are prone to blame everything on Satan. All three cases are incorrect. Misapplications of this truth. Verse 14 to 15, if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. One of the ways you can successfully fight sin, whether it's the sin of your tongue or anything else, one of the ways that you can do it successfully is to know your enemy. We've already mentioned the devil. Here, James calls our attention to our threefold enemy. You need to know, these, these are three enemies that are just waiting on the side of the ring, waiting to jump in. It's like tag team wrestling. Only you get killed. So do you know your enemy? The world, the flesh, and the devil. 
James says, the tongue that harbors bitterness and boasts of selfishness and denies the truth, this wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Earthly, unspiritual, demonic, the world, the flesh, the devil. These three adversaries are attracted to the tongue, like moths to a flame, right? They're attracted to it. It's magnetic for those enemies. Especially the tongue of the disciple of Jesus. If you get an unbeliever blaspheming and cursing, who cares? You can just go on doing that for eternity. But the world, the flesh, and the devil, these threefold enemies, are going to be attracted to our tongue. That's where the big punches can be landed for the enemy cause. The world without, the flesh within, and the devil in unseen spiritual realms. The world without, the flesh within, and the devil in unseen spiritual realms. So what do I, what do I want us to take away from this, from James 3? Apart from a few bruises, probably. I want us to recognize how flippantly we regard the use of our tongue. Right? We are so flippant. Nonchalant. Just throw words out without even thinking about them. James wants you to know, you have a weapon of mass destruction. Don't leave the safety off. If you're like me, and you read James and say, whoa, he's going a bit overboard with this, don't you think? Forest fires and demons and untamed beasts, it's a bit over the top. You're like me, we need to spend the rest of this service, God willing, the rest of this day, reconsidering our view of the power of our tongues and asking God to realign our understanding with the truth of His Word. It was said of Jesus in John 7 46, no man ever spoke like this man. Glorious. Don't you want that? At your funeral, not just at the eulogy where they have to say nice things, but afterwards, people mingling. Wouldn't you love people who know you well to say, no man, no woman ever spoke like this man. May it be so, as we live in the power of his grace, may it be so. Let's pray.